So we are in 1 Corinthians. We finished the first four chapters, and that dealt with factionalism in the church. Paul was dealing with some people who were really puffed up and thought that they knew more than they did. Somebody liked the way Paul did it, and somebody else liked the way Apollos did it, and somebody else liked the way somebody else did it, and they devolved into factions, so Paul was dealing with that. Now we're going to move on to sex and marriage. So, we are in chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Yeshua, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Yeshua, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. There is a list of prohibited sexual relations in Leviticus. And one of the people that you're not allowed to have sex with is your father's wife. And it does not say your mother. It says your father's wife. So the situation that is being spoken against there is your father takes a second wife, your father gets divorced and remarries, or something, so we have a stepmother, essentially. Or in the case of multiple wives, the wife of your father, but not your mother. In this case, what we could do is we could have something like the trophy wife, where the father is older and has taken a much younger woman as his wife, and so his son and this new wife, if you will, are somewhat compatible in age. I mean, there's all sorts of situations, and they are all over the news today, so there's nothing unusual about what's going on here. And one of the things that Paul is upset about, and he gets upset about it in varying degrees throughout the letter, is behavior within the church that would give the church a bad name in society. You have a young religious movement. It's an offshoot of Judaism. Initially, it was Judaism for Gentiles, but later on, Judaism and the Gentile church went their separate ways. And as Ray said this weekend, that was by mutual consent. I mean, it was not one pushing out more than the other. But given that they are new and small, and they don't have any real protection, because Judaism has some legal protection in the Roman Empire because they are a legal religion. And Christianity does not have any such protection at this point. So Christians are subject to harassment. They're also subject to legal sanctions, uh, especially with regard to the cult of Caesar. So Paul is really sensitive to anything that would bring this church into disrepute in society in general. So he leads off with, this guy's doing stuff that even the pagans don't do. But you sort of read between the lines as, uh, guys, you're really making yourself look like a bunch of weirdos, you know, sort of like David Koresh's cult down in Texas. If you get looking too weird, SWAT teams show up at your door kind of thing. 
So that's sort of one aspect of what's going on here. The other aspect is apparently nobody's willing to correct it. And that disturbs him. And he's going to talk about judgment within the church. But at this point, he steps up himself and says, I condemn this. And if I were there in person, I'd condemn it in person, but I'm there in spirit, so I'm condemning it in spirit, and you can't do that kind of stuff. It's wrong. And then the last thing he says, which is where we're going to camp out for a couple of minutes, is throw the guy out of the church and give him over to Satan so that Satan can destroy his flesh so that in the judgment his soul might be saved. Now, we talked, I think last time, about building your life and some people build with wood, hay, and stubble, and other people build with gold, silver, and precious stones. And your works are going to go through the fire. And if your works are combustible, they will be burned up. If they are not combustible, they will last and go through the fire, and you will have them on the other side, which is to say, in the resurrection. So the first thing that you can infer is that this guy who is doing this is in the Baptist sense saved which is to say that he professed Yeshua as Lord and so forth. And Paul is saying, I'm not worried about his eternity. What I'm worried about is his present. I use this phrase of mine, saved in the Baptist sense, not to cast dispersions on Baptist, but to technically describe their understanding of the salvation process, which means that you make a confession. You're either in the kingdom or out of the kingdom, and having made that confession, you're in the kingdom. And at that point, there may be consequences, but you're not going to hell. That's what I mean by saved in the Baptist sense. And I'm not saying that pejoratively, I am simply saying that descriptively. So what he says then is, give this guy over to Satan, which is to say, this is now Johnnyology, kick him out of the church and let his behavior consume him. One of the things that happens with rotten behavior, behavior that is contrary to scripture, and we may get that far tonight when he's going to talk about law, is Torah is designed to give humans rules for abundant living. If you walk in Torah, regardless of whether you believe in God, your life is going to go pretty well because Torah is set up so that it maximizes life and it maximizes the good things of the world. That's what it's designed to do. So even if you don't believe in God, if you were to walk in Torah, your life would go much better than if you didn't. And so the way I'm interpreting this is, okay, this guy is so far away from walking in Torah that at some point he's going to combust and self-destruct. Get him out of the church let him continue in his sinful lifestyle and let him combust and self-destruct so at the end of his life he will still come into the kingdom of God but in this life he will reap the consequences of his behavior. This guy is flagrantly doing what he's doing. Nobody is confronting him which sounds just like the Episcopal Church. You have people in the church that are doing things that are flagrantly contrary to scripture and everybody is afraid to be judgmental so they don't do anything about it. Since Paul has heard about it in a letter I don't get the impression that it's anything that the church leadership was ignorant of. So the fact that Paul has gotten in a letter 
indicates to me that the whole church knows about it. So it isn't the case that the leadership has been blindsided. The leadership hasn't done anything about it. And as I say, we see the same thing in our churches today, where you have people who come into the church and do stuff that is flagrantly unscriptural, and everybody is just terrified to bring them up and say, stop, you can't do that in here, for fear of being called judgmental. The other part of that is, in many churches, if you do confront somebody about their behavior, they'll be in your face screaming, how dare you? So people back off. And I get the impression that that kind of stuff is what's going on in this church. There was a case in England where a young Muslim man was tried for raping a 13-year-old British girl. And he was free because he said, in my religion, it's okay. And the British judge said, oh, well, you didn't know any better. Okay, take off. So you see this breakdown, and once the breakdown starts, it just goes everywhere. So Paul is confronting it, and one of the things that plagues the church, the Christian church, is antinomianism, lawlessness. They have taken books like Galatians and so forth as freeing them from the requirements of the law. And since the law is the repository of moral behavior, being freed from that, you can then do anything you want. And there have been sects of Christianity that have done that. Some French sect, I don't remember the name of them, had this motto to the pure, all things are pure. And they lived in just terrible debauchery. And they said, it's okay, because my heart is pure, therefore my actions are okay, no matter what they are. This is a pathology of Christianity. When Christianity decouples itself from Torah, which is, as I say, the repository of moral teaching, then what happens is you have a religion that says, God loves me, God approves of what I'm doing, God approves, it's okay. And you wind up then having the worst excesses of the human heart run riot, which is what's going on here in the church. Because Paul is going to talk about this very subject a little bit later on in, I believe, chapter 6 or 7. The idea then is, as long as your mind's right, and praying and all that kind of stuff, and you believe in Jesus and you know, reading the King James Bible only, doesn't matter what you do. You're saying it. It's a pathology that Christian churches have fallen into for the last 2,000 years. And you'll get somebody that'll get a hold of Galatians and we'll just run off the rails. And we'll say, I'm saved. God loves me. Doesn't matter what I do. So anyway, one last trip back on turning this guy over to Satan and then we'll move on. The place that I go to understand that phrase is to Proverbs. Because what Proverbs talks about is the consequences of behavior that is contrary to God's word. The fact that walking contrary to God's word is not something that necessarily sends you to hell. What it will do is it will lead you into ruin in your life. And so I look at this, give this one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh as essentially being a short, rough lesson in Proverbs. At least the way he writes here, Paul is of the opinion that 
this guy's works are going to be burned up as he goes through the fire, but he himself will be saved, although smelling of smoke. I sort of get the impression that that's what Paul thinks. So verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Messiah, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, this particular passage, there's a couple of things you can do with it. First off is the obvious one, which is sin spreads. A little bit of sin will soon make the whole lump of dough leavened. It is not the case that you can encapsulate the leaven in part of the dough and the rest of the dough is okay, but this one little place is bad. Once leaven hits the dough, for those of you who have been around a while, the Jews believe that once water hits flour, you've got about 18 minutes before it starts to leaven, just with yeast in the air. So the idea that you can somehow isolate sin to this little place and it'll stay capsulated, he says, is wrong. Because once it starts, it goes through the whole lump. There's that. That's obvious, I think. And then he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. And this goes back to what we talked about earlier, being saved in the Baptist sense. In other words, you guys really are unleavened, parenthesis, saved, but you have let leaven into the body and that leaven in the form of sin is spreading into everything. So what we do in Passover, and we're in that season now, and most of you are cleaning your houses, is we go through our house and we clean out all the old leaven. That's part of the Passover process. And then he says, Messiah, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, but with the sincerity of an unleavened heart. Now, the other thing I don't know is whether or not this is being written at the time of Passover or whether it's simply a metaphor. Just don't know the answer to that. But I find it fascinating that he refers to the Passover process as something that the Christian should emulate, at least spiritually. One of the things that the Sunday church has done is they have distanced themselves from all those Jewish practices. Paul doesn't do so. He uses it as a metaphor to teach, and he also, I believe, celebrates Passover and expects them to do so also. 1 Corinthians 5.9 I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. This letter has been lost. He's referring to another letter. So this is 1 Corinthians. The next one is going to be 2 Corinthians. This is yet a third letter that was written to the Corinthians before 1 Corinthians was written, and that letter has been lost. Nobody knows what it said, except as Paul refers to it. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to get out of the world. That was what I said earlier. In other words, me telling you not to associate with sinners doesn't mean that you don't walk through the world. It means don't associate with them in the church. Verse 11, 
But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those people. Purge the evil person from among you. So one of the big bugaboos in the Sunday church these days, in our society in general, is you're not allowed to judge me. Paul says here that within the church, you are expected to exercise judgment. You, by the way, can also exercise judgment outside of the church. You just don't have any judicial authority. So you can look at somebody walking down the street and say, that person is a reprobate. But there's nothing you can do about it. But within the church, you're supposed to keep that stuff at bay. And one of the things that has happened in the modern church is people are terrified of being called judgmental. Chapter 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? All right, stop there a minute. I don't find that in Scripture. His phrase, do you not know, is like, guys, I shouldn't have to remind you of this. You should know this. Which indicates to me that on a previous trip, he has told them about it. Now, having said that, I don't find that in Scripture. What I do find in Scripture is that Yeshua is going to judge the world. And I do find that during the millennial reign, believers are to be with him. So I suppose you could extrapolate that being with Yeshua in the millennial kingdom gives us some sort of official function, but it isn't ever stated in Scripture that I can find. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Yeshua talking to Peter. My understanding of that is that it's a Jewish phrase, and what it talks about is setting halaha. Halaha, for those of you who don't know, is a Hebrew phrase, which means, how do you walk it out? Torah is fairly sparse and parsimonious. So as you go through life, you run into situations that are not exactly described in Torah. And so the question is, okay, this situation has moral implications, but I'm not quite sure what the rule is. So you go to a teacher and you say, what's the rule here? And the teacher who theoretically is a better scholar than you are says, uh, I think this is how we should do this. And then that becomes halaha. How do you walk it out? It's sort of like the conversation we had on Shabbat where we were talking about fat. You know, you can't eat the fat from the inside of an animal. And so the question now becomes, what about all beef hot dogs? What kind of fat do they put in there? Hillshire Farms, all beef hot dogs in collagen cases. Can you eat them or not? And the question becomes, what do they use for makeup fat? Have they used fat from the inside of the animal, which is forbidden, or have they used muscle trimming fat, which is permitted? Somebody needs to make a decision. You understand? So halaha then is the compendium of these decisions that people have made over the years. So when Peter is told by Messiah, 
what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, what he's saying is you have authority to make halakha. Your rulings on things to do with scripture will be authoritative. Within this church, Ray and I and the elders, if we ever have to, we'll get together and we'll make halakha. In fact, we did that when the church was first set up. The question became, when is the new moon? And all of us sat down and I was on one side and Ray was on the other side. And I won't tell you which side each of us was on. But one of us said, you can look out there and see when the new moon is. That's the new moon. And the other one said, eh, that really feels isolated. And so what we came up with is when the Karaites see the new moon in Jerusalem and they send out a worldwide email, that's when we will accept the new moon. And so that's halaha for this church. I mean, there's all sorts of questions like that in a community of faith because people take things seriously. And everything isn't written down in the Torah. So how do we do this? And we've had several knockdown dragouts, metaphorically speaking, with Ray and I and the elders as we figured out how do we want to handle such and such a situation. And the one that comes to my mind is, say, is the new moon. But we've had others. And we still do lunch, still like each other. Somebody has to decide. So anyway, all of this was by way of saying, I don't know where he gets this idea that we're going to judge angels. I don't find that in Scripture. So verse 4. And we're talking about brothers going to secular courts in disputes within the church. So that's the subject. So verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. There's sort of two aspects to this. Aspect number one is, as we started off the hour, the reputation of the church. So if the church has a reputation of too many scorpions in one bottle and always squabbling and dragging each other into law, it's, it's going to degrade the reputation of the church within the secular society. That's sort of thing one. Thing two is one would expect that a dispute would have moral overtones and you really want someone who understands the morality that we preach to do the judgment. Because a secular judge is limited in the factors he can bring to bear on a case. Whereas a judge within the community is not. So I see that this is having two aspects. One is reputation and then the other one is you're going to get a more harmonious result if you keep it inside the body. And then the last thing he says is, you guys are tearing each other apart. How come you can't live together, and how come you feel this necessity to keep taking each other into court? That tells me that there's a problem with the community. You've got people in there that are either, to use a biblical phrase, ravenous wolves among the flock. That's one possibility. Or you have people that just are contentious, and there's no harmony in the church. Verse 9, 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Yeshua Messiah by the Spirit of our God. I am reading that as first saved in the Baptist sense, but also encouragement. So what he's trying to do is call them to their better natures. He's saying that you guys are acting worse than pagans. You should have come out of that. You shouldn't be treating each other worse than pagans treat each other. You're better than that. You can read that as, on the one hand, the law will judge you, because all of those things are contrary to Torah. In another place, he will say that everything is legal, but not everything is profitable. And I don't know where you were in here when we had the discussion about the nature of Torah, which is Torah is designed by God so that humans who live by it will thrive. So he says, all of these kinds of people will not inherit the kingdom of God, but then he says, but you're not those. You used to be those, but you're not those. You were washed with the blood of Christ. So they're acting in that way, but what I see him doing is calling them to their better natures and saying to them, you all know this is wrong. And you all know that people who practice this are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But you're not among those. Sort of like going back to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments can be looked at as a set of do's and don'ts. Don't you dare steal. Don't you dare bear false witness. Or it can be looked at as a description of the bride. The bride is not a thief. The bride is not a murderer. The bride is not covetous. The bride is not an adulteress. So it's a description of the bride as opposed to a list of things you can't do. And so you can look at Paul's statement here in that same light. You all know that people that do this stuff are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But you're not that way. You were purchased by Messiah. You're not that way. Now, clearly some of them are. He wouldn't be writing this letter. But I see it as by way of encouragement. So now here we're down to verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now, if you spend a lot of time with Sunday Christians and evangelicals who are fine people and not knocking them, they will gravitate to places like this and say, I can do anything I want because I'm covered by the blood. I've had people argue that. As I said earlier in the hour, there have been sects of Christianity who have applied this literally and they have lived in debauchery, secure in the knowledge that they are covered by the blood. I don't see this as an invitation to license. I see this as Paul trying to teach Torah to dumb Gentiles. They are not under the Jewish law per se. But having said that, what he's saying is, you might not be judicially subject to the law, but in the Proverbs sense, you do these things 
it's going to go poorly for you. This may not be against some law, but it is definitely not profitable. So this is the argument for Proverbs, if you will. He doesn't quote Proverbs, but that's the basis of the argument. So verse uh, 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Messiah? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And this is again in the, in the context of the two shall become one flesh. When a man and a woman come together sexually, in addition to the normal exchange of fluids, there is a spiritual connection that gets made. That's one of the things that is messing up so much of the younger generation, is they don't recognize that there's a spiritual connection that gets made, and when that connection gets made and broken casually, as it does among the young now, it screws them up. And it especially messes up women, more so than men. They just don't understand it, and then they wonder why they hit 40 and they got a house full of cats and nothing else. I'm serious. I mean, it's that's a consequence of this rampant sexual immorality. Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We just finished Hebrews. And in Hebrews, he spends a long time talking about the three orders of priesthood. You've got the Levitical order of priesthood, you've got the order of Melchizedek, and you've got the order of all believers. And you've got three different venues of worship. You've got the temple of the tabernacle, you've got the tabernacle in heaven, and then you've got the body of Messiah. And what he's saying is you are part of the body of Messiah, which is this third temple, if you will, and the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And what you don't want to do is you don't want to join that to a prostitute. Shut